1: all over the place, you know that uh, something has, was well, as we say, crossed the chasm when your mom texts you about chat GPT. So yeah, we are definitely in that place where uh, AI technology, at least generative AI technology using large language models has been so democratized, it's in the hands of everybody. So we have to spend time here on the AI Today podcast talking about generative AI, but not talking about it in sort of the generic way that the average TikToker or YouTuber are talking about it, that you can find a million videos on. We need to talk about it in the AI Today world, which is really trying to understand how do these things work? But of course, we're not going to do it all in one podcast. We're going to spread things out and do things over a few podcasts. Right, Kathleen?
0: Exactly. So our much-anticipated generative AI series is finally here, And we've been listening to uh, you, our listeners, so thank you for reaching out and giving us ideas on topics that you'd like us to discuss and dive deeper on. And so, of course, we had to be talking about generative AI. So over the course of, you know, a number of podcasts, we'll be digging deeper into these topics. We want to start with, obviously, how does it work so that we can give our listeners a nice overview of how it works and why you should care both personally but really for your organization. Because at the end of the day, that's what matters, right? A lot of people are doing silly things with it, or, you know, maybe not as useful as it could be. So we wanted to spend some time saying, okay, this is generative AI, how does it work? And why should you care for your organization?
1: Yeah, and we're going to spend some time explaining a little bit about the the how does how do large language models work kind of not at the super technical level but enough to understand some of the big concepts because to a lot of people uh, these large language models that are generating text or generating images seem like magic. And it's like all magic tricks, you know. Some t- hey, it's really easy to be impressed by a magic trick. You take your kids to a magic show. Someone's making doves appear and making rings go through rings and fire and you're like, okay, I'm an adult, but I'm impressed. I gotta say, that's a good magic trick. But then you know, that's like, it's not like the magicians reinvented a new kind of physics. They didn't magically make things go from one place to the other, to another. If they did, we'd be on Mars. Would I'd say, hey, magician, get me to Mars. There, and they'd be like, whoop, whoop, we're in Mars. But uh, so there is no so so. When you reveal the magic trick and you know how it works, then you can be like, oh, okay, I see how things work. And I think that's what we want to do, especially here on this first p- podcast. So, in the series, so in this first generative AI series, we want to talk, we want to pull back the, the curtain on the magic that is LLMs and explain what exactly is happening with generative AI. How do large language models work? If you've never heard of tokens and embedding and vectors and prompt engineering, we will tell you about those things. We're not gonna go super high level. We're not gonna go super low level. We'll try to be on that surface level. And please join us. So this, so so what you're gonna hear are some excerpts from our CPMAI version seven training, our latest training, where we go into some of these details. And in the training, we do go a little bit deeper and deeper for our trainees. But uh, we wanted to share with you here, our listeners, to uh, to, to show with you how generative AI works.
0: You may have heard this term a lot recently. Generative AI really is this idea of creating new data from existing data. So machine learning systems are good at discovering patterns, either by being trained through supervised learning, through discovery with unsupervised learning, or by trial and error with reinforcement learning. So what if we can create new data that is similar to the patterns that we have already found? Generative AI is the application of machine learning techniques to the creation of new data based on these learned patterns. So generative AI models are a type of deep learning neural network model. And for generative AI, we create machine learning models whose output is the sort of data that we're looking to generate. So the generative models are usually specific to the kind of thing it is that you want to generate. So it's important to note here, text generators, they're really optimized for text and not great at generating images. And then on the reverse side, image generators really are optimized for images and not for generating text. So depending on the application that you want to use, if you want to create text, use a text generator. And if you want to create images, use an optimized image generator. So the question comes up, well, why would we want to generate new data? And there's a variety of different reasons for that. Chatbots generate new text data to respond to conversations, also to generate longer forms of text from smaller amounts of input text. So you may have, you know, just a paragraph of input text and you want to be able to generate longer forms of text, such as maybe an article or a blog for your website. You also can generate images from existing images and also generate images from text. So with just a small prompt, you're able to give an image generator uh, what it is that you'd want, and then you can get that image generated. So over here on the left, you'll see that we did that. The image was generated using Stable Diffusion XL model using the prompt cartoon illustration of someone using a generative AI model. So with that small amount of text, we were able to get a cartoon illustration of what it is that we wanted. You can also generate new quantitative data from existing quantitative data and synthetic data that we might use to train machine learning systems is generated AI data. So, and, you know, if you want to create original text, images, and data for applications where maybe you, you know, can't make use of existing data for a variety of different reasons, this could be, uh, you know, privacy-related issues, intellectual property-related issues, security, and other critical reasons as well. Those are great reasons to have generative AI create new text, new images, or data that you need to use.
1: One of the approaches that's been making waves, especially recently, and it's currently a lot of the state of the art of machine learning and artificial intelligence with regards to neural networks, is this idea of the transformer network or transformer model. And like many of these other approaches to neural networks, it's an architecture, it's a design, it's a way that we leverage and use deep learning neural networks in a particular configuration of these neurons and maybe different networks connected to other different networks to achieve some sort of goal and the goal with the transformer network is that it's designed to process sequential input data like text or videos or things like that that have some sort of sequence just like we have done with recurrent neural networks where we have these neural networks with loops in them But unlike recurrent neural networks, the idea we have here is that some parts of the sequence may be more important or more key to understanding other parts of the sequence. This is the idea of attention or self-attention, where we can process a long string of input without having to process each sequentially one at a time. The idea for the Transformer Network it comes from a few things that have existed before. One is this idea of attention is all you need, which was a paper that builds upon the idea of something called a sequence to sequence. So this is the idea of what a Transformer is. So the reason why we call it Transformer is we're transforming some sequence, something like perhaps a string of words, like a prompt, you know, let's say, you know, uh, tell me a, a story about castles, Right. And what the network is going to try to do is transform that string into a longer sequence. In this case, a story about castles or something that represents something about the input that represents the intent of what that input is. And so this is generally called a sequence-to-sequence architecture. We transform one sequence, a sequence of words in 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 a sentence, to another sequence, a different sequence of words, perhaps a shorter sequence if we're trying to summarize something long or a generative sequence where i take something short and create something longer out of it so like autoencoders and gans that we have talked about where we have pairs of networks and multiple networks tied together sequence to sequence models consist of an encoder and a decoder where i basically take some input i represent it as some sort of code and then i try to regenerate the input using some sort of decoder and take that code representation and make it something bigger. So in this case, the encoder translates the first sequence into some sort of intermediate sequence. And then the decoder then translates from that intermediate sequence to what the wanted sequence is. And in addition to that, so that's sort of the general form. And we can use sort of traditional networkal approaches or say traditional, but the ones that have been around for a while with recurring neural networks and uh, long short-term memory, things like that. But we found that those approaches kind of were much more sequence-oriented, that they were much more tied to the specific sequence. And when they looked at the attention mechanism, they could realize that they could sort of hold parts of the sequence that are more important. Traditional sequence-to-sequence models used something called long short-term memory for the encoders and decoders. But these modern transformers don't use them. And instead of focus on something called the attention, with something called multi-head attention, which is beyond the scope of this thing, but the idea is that we can sort of represent these instead of as an LSTM and some sort of thought vector that we can then decode into something bigger. So transformer models have proven to be extremely powerful because a lot of things are represented as sequences, or we can transform a sequence into something else. We could take a sequence of words and transform it into an image that we can use as a generative adversarial network and create something very realistic out of it. We can take input text and prompts and generate longer text out of it you, to create something like ChatGPT, something that's a much longer string. And as you know, ChatGPT is the generative pre trained transformer model. Now we know what all those parts of that term mean. Generative means it's generating something. Pre-trained means that we created a model based on it learning a large and large and large amount of text that's already on the internet from all these places. And Transformer, where we basically take some input text and we transform it into something that's like the internet text that we see out there. So we know how this works. It's uh, not a mystery. Of course, the technical details are very technical, but the general, general idea is not so technical. But there's lots of applications here. As I mentioned, we could summarize text. We could classify text. We can answer questions. We can model a language to try to understand the parts of the language. We could translate from one language to another. We can, of course, generate lots of text. We could try to extract from the text, say, entities such as names and people and core ideas. And it's really very powerful for natural language processing, for image generation. But there's a lot of applications of this, perhaps even ones we haven't even thought of. So it's been popularized by very powerful versions of this that have been trained on a very large amount of data. So they have a lot of examples of what they can generate, so they can compare them and make sure they generate something adequate. GPT-3, of course, stable diffusion, mid-journey something called BERT, which is one of the predates, actually, GPT, these transformer models are quickly becoming a preferred way to do natural language problems and many other approaches that require transforming some sequence, such as text-to-image or text-to-text or any sort of other applications.
0: Large language models, also sometimes called LLMs, are trained deep learning neural network models that are configured to generate human understandable text from human provided input prompts. So a human types in something with their prompt, and then the large language model will generate something in return text or images. So large language models use very large data sets to understand, summarize, generate, and then predict new content. Large language models leverage transformer models, which have proven to be especially powerful for things like natural language processing applications and also image generation. But they've also shown versatility in a wide range of applications, even in use cases for computer vision as well. So popularized by models such as GPT-3, stable diffusion, and BERT, all of them may have been something that you've heard of before. Transformer models are quickly becoming a preferred model of choice for a wide range of natural language processing applications and other uses that require transformation of one sequence into another. So for example, one text sequence, such as a prompt, into another text sequence, such as a much longer amount of text, or from a text prompt to an image or other applications. So I can type in something saying, generate a computer on a desk. And then I will get an image that generates a computer on a desk. And I can also say, write a 400-word article on the topic of large language models. And then it will give me a 400-word article on the topic of large language models. As you can imagine, there are many applications for large language models. They're proving incredibly useful for a variety of things. Obviously, content and text generation, you're able to, with a small prompt, generate very large amounts of content. It's also good for text summarization and translation as well, especially if it's able to handle multiple languages. It can translate from one language to another. It's also proving that it's able to improve search quality. So people are using large language models for search now to help get answers with a variety of different things. It's also good at classifying and categorizing content, code generation, people are using it to help write and generate code and augment their code writing. Also it's used to generate art as I had mentioned earlier I can type in uh you know generate a computer on a desk, and it will do that. And it's also good at chatbots. You're seeing a lot of organizations now look to large language models to help them have chatbots to answer a variety of different questions. As you can imagine, they are incredibly popular. There's many pros to large language models, but there's cons as well. So you really want to make sure that you're weighing both of them. The pros are that it's easy to use. You know, many people can do this. You may have conversations with family members and you never thought that you would be talking AI with them. Now you are because it is easy to use. And it has it's flexible as well. It can be used for many different things. So we talked about generating art, writing code, writing large bodies of text. It really has a lot of flexibility. It's also fast. So it gives fast performance and fast speed of results. And it is fairly accurate, especially if it's been trained on more recent data it's and it only gets better over time. But there are also cons with this. Creating large language models is complicated. It requires large amounts of data and also large amounts of compute power. So that is something that you need to be mindful of especially if you'd like to train it on your own data and and things like that. Just know that, you know, it is complicated. This means these models are very large and complex with billions of parameters. I mean, you know, we talked about chat uh GPT-3 GPT-3 had 175 billion parameters. So just think about how large and complex these are. Large language models also generate what it predicts to be the text, which means it's not always accurate and it can be prone to hallucination. It can give you kind of these crazy results. So it is recommended to have a human in the loop so that you are double checking the results and use it as a tool, but don't use it and... Publish that. You know, you really need to be using it just as a tool and be double checking it, keep the human in the loop, as we say. And also, it has a lack of explainability that so called black box technology which we talk about neural nets and deep learning having black box technology, just note that it's not going to be explainable with how it got to those answers. So if you do need that explainability, it might not always be the best. But as I mentioned, there's so many pros and cons to it. Now you know what it is at a high level um, so that if you're using it yourself, you'll be more equipped to know you know how it came about and what you're doing.
1: How do large language models work? So large language models are all the rage right now, in part because they are powering this this big wave of generative AI, the ability to take small amounts of text and from that generate large amounts of text or image and all sorts of uh, capabilities. And they certainly feel like magic in many cases. They provide such fantastic responses or amazing responses, of course, not without their issues, but they do that in such a way that it really has energized a lot of people in thinking about what are the possibilities of AI. For a while, it seemed like you know AI. Did the most impressive things were on autonomous vehicles and image recognition and things like that. But but now all of a sudden, large language models have gotten attention, and certainly pe- everybody has used them. You're getting probably getting messages from <laughs> from your parents or from your kids about using them. And it's in every product we're starting to use now, the uh, generation capabilities. And so people are are becoming more and more familiar with using them. But do you really know how they work? And a lot of times people treat it like magic and are asking these large language models honestly ridiculous questions, assuming that they're sentient. Like, What is your favorite color? And what do you think of, about robots? taking over humanity, not realizing that large language models are actually fundamentally still just text predictors. That's what they are. They are models that generate and predict things. In the case of language models, we're outputting text, other text, words, which we call tokens, because again, machines don't really understand words. They're still fundamentally about numbers. And And just try to predict what they are based on what the input words are, which is we call the prompt. You give it a little bit of input words, and it outputs a bunch of output words, or perhaps images if we're doing image generation. So let's actually try to explain how this works. And once you understand how it works, it's like a magic trick. Once you know how the magic trick works, it seems so magical that things are disappearing and they're going here and they're going there, or like the color is changing, or rings are spicing, but we know that the laws of physics haven't changed. If we could make something disappear and reappear, well, wow, our spacecraft problems would be solved because we've solved the issue of matter transportation. But it's not like a magician is some sort of amazing physicist who's figured out transportation. So clearly there's a trick. And once you understand how the trick works, then a lot of this mystery goes away. And so that's what we want to do with large language models. Let's sort of eliminate the magic. So, if we think of large language models, there's really two parts. There's the large part, which has to do with the fact that we have these big models that have been trained on billions of samples of text. And then the second part is, of course, the language model part, which is the model that we create that understands language patterns and generates language outputs. So, in order to really understand large language models, we need to first understand how machine learning. The, how it handles the idea of language. So let's start with that. And many of you may understand. It. So for some of you, this may be basic, but maybe there's some nuance here that you don't quite understand. That may give you the "aha." Uh-huh, that's what's happening. That's what's when I when I generate a prompt. That's the output, and that's why it's doing that. So the first is we need to understand tokens, because fundamentally, machines don't understand language. They don't really understand text. We need to to take these jumbles of characters, which a machine doesn't really understand, and put it in a way that a machine can understand it. And the concept is the idea of the token. And a token is is a way to represent text in a way that a machine learning algorithm can understand it. Because machine learning algorithms, still, the algorithms are using, deep learning neural nets that are based on all these methods, are still based on weights and biases with input numbers. And those input neurons still have to be numbers um, that we apply a weight to and we put them all together. These are fancy, of course, neural nets that have lots of particular configurations here, but they need to be represented as numbers. So we have to represent these raw text as numbers. So what we do with tokens is the first thing we do is we take a sentence or a prompt and we tokenize it. And that's first we chop it up, we split it up. This, this sentence into a sequel sequence of smaller meaningful parts. So we could take sentences and split them up into words or phrases. We can do that just by looking at white space, the blank, the, the spaces and characters between that and punctuation marks. We can also take uh, you know, the document, like documents and split them into parts. We can even take words and split them even into more fine-grained parts, especially when we look at prefixes and suffixes. And we do this, we, we call them tokens. And a token, is is important because it could be a word or a word part or an engram, which is a series of words sort of used in combination, Uh, they could be repeated. So we could have the same token used multiple times, like the and this and 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 person, whatever it is, across not only the same input, but across other inputs that the system has seen before. And so therefore, they could be common or important words or repeated components of documents, or if we're tokenizing images, we can do images, but let's talk about language models here, so focusing just on that, or parts of documents that might appear in multiple input data. So we can... Tokenize that's to take this larger phrase into smaller l- levels, so into the character, like in each individual letter. But that's a little t- too fine grained because we're not looking at things at the individual character, unless, of course, it's a language where the characters matter, such as some uh, Asian languages and other languages like that. But we can also tokenize it at the word level, the sentence level, the line, the paragraph a paragraph or the engram, which is basically just a group of words, like a phrase. Sometimes phrases are important uh, because they're important to understand. So we take take these tokens and we, of course, we wanna represent them in terms of some sort of ID, an identifier. And that identifier is a number. And that number basically can come from a variety of places. It can come from a dictionary where you literally match the word or the token against that and you get the dictionary entry or it could come from some other sort of pre-arranged system where we have a way of basically representing common words and those have their own unique IDs and then the uncommon words or the ones that are maybe people's names are just represented as a generic, you know, gen- general <laughs> token, right? And then of course it also can represent things like suffixes. Uh like uh like if I if I have a sentence called this is an example of a tokenizer, then each of the tokens might be this is each, each one token may be like, this is a token, is a token, and is a token, example is a token, et cetera, et cetera. And izer might actually be its own token because izer is a common suffix that's used in a lot of words. Generally, that means that we don't have a one-to-one correlation between, say, the words in a prompt and the number of tokens that might be generated by a system. There's it's not a hard and fast rule, but generally there's about four tokens that are generated for every three words in an input prompt. Of course, it depends on the complexity of the prompt and how long the prompts are. But if you have, let's say, a thirty-word prompt, you should—you'll probably have about forty tokens that are generated. And we use a variety of open-source and other technologies to tokenize things. All right, that's one concept. So now that we have these tokens, is represent these uh, words and parts of words as IDs. We need to sort of figure how they're related, because that's not enough. Okay, great, so we have IDs for words, that's just sort of a one-to-one replacement almost. We need to represent them in a way that a machine can figure out the correlations between these words. And that's the the idea of the word vector. So natural language processing models use more than just a single number, that's just a token to represent a word. And in fact, we have all these different dimensions. If I say, you know, king, Or if I say cat, there's many different dimensions to that word. It's not just the word cat is a dimension to pet and size and furry and mammal and all this sorts of stuff. And generally, a lot of NLP models will use more than 1,000 different dimensions or different aspects or different numbers, that's the way the system is, to represent a single word. So, a word vector. So, if you're familiar with math, a vector is like a, it's not just a point, but it's actually a line that's pointing in a specific direction. But we could think of if we have this token that's identified by a number and it's existing in this universe where that number has a coordinate across all these different dimensions, thousand dimensions, but keep it simple like, you know, a handful of dimensions, you know, size, age, whatever, (laughs) whatever the dimensions are. That one word, cat, that's represented by a number exists as a point along those dimensions uh, in in different ways. And if we draw like a line from the the zero, the origin to that, then we have a vector. We have a line that's pointing towards that uh, location in multidimensional space. So a word vector is a point in this multidimensional space where each dimension represents a particular aspect or characteristic of that token, the word, right? And tokens with more similar meanings, the things that are kind of are similar are closer to each other, whereas tokens that are less similar are farther away from each other. So the token that would represent cat in the vector space would probably be closest to things like dog and kitten and pet by based on whatever those dimensions are. So language models use this idea of the vector space with hundreds or even thousands, as mentioned, of dimensions. Now this was uh, not a new concept. It's been around for a while, but Google's Word2Vec, like I think in 2013, really Uh, evolved this space and it really advanced this idea of word vector approaches based on analysis of millions of Google News articles. It just looked at sort of word frequency and also looked at kind of where the words were in terms of related to each other. And and they really have advanced this word vector idea. And you can use what's called vector math or vector arithmetic, which allows you to do things like, oh, if I look at the pluralization of a word, this word and its pluralization, obviously it's going (laughs) to be almost at the same point Uh, in the vector space, or things where we can do things like we look at suffixes, like big and biggest, you know, they are very closely related to each other. But not only that, the vector, the line that goes between big and biggest is the same line that can go from small to smallest. Or we can even do math where we don't even need to figure out small to smallest. We can sort of just figure out that line change for est, and we can add est to any word where it's like, we just take a look at the vector space and see how big and biggest gets changed by that little Addition of an additional line that moves. If you think about it, it's the line that points from one spot in vector space to the next. That line, we can use that as like a little math and say, well, we can add that line, that little incremental line to another word, and it'll basically result in something very similar. So I can go big, biggest, small, smallest, heavy, heaviest, you know, smart, smartest, whatever it is. And that vector arithmetic really works. And it works to make a lot of linguistic comparisons, pluralization, opposites, categorization, things like that. So these vectors really can also represent the same word with different vectors if they're used in different contexts because the same word can be used in different ways. So we're like, well, wait a second, what does that mean? I can have different vectors for the same word depending on its context. So I can have one context where let's say the word band, right, band. Well, band in the context of the rubber band connects things maybe in one particular spot in vector space But the word band for he plays in a country band may be in a different spot. And therefore, it's related to different words and it's different. Like the word rubber band may be related to, you know, paperclip and other things that they have a close correlation. Whereas country band, you know, that then from that context, that's an engram. Those two words together may, may relate more to music and rock and things like that. So we could think of that in this way, that these word vectors help us group these words together and relate them to each other. brings us to a third idea, which is called word embedding. So with hundreds and or thousands of dimensions that a natural language processing model might have, how does the system know where to put a particular token, which is this little word or word component? So the idea of word embedding is the process of mapping this token, which is, again, just an ID. It's a, it's a number, right? the word is not cat. It's represented by some number. We want to map it to the vector space so that it has meaning for the machine learning model or neural network. So we we create these embeddings, and so these embeddings are ways of sort of taking the word in its context and putting it in the right place in the vector space so that we can relate it to the other words and then use this vector arithmetic to do various manipulations to it. So we can use various different natural language processing models that have been pre-trained. There are models that are, are good for embedding and they will figure it out, right? There's, uh, there's this CBOW, the uh, uh, common band, I think it's a bag of words, and skipgram are popular embedding methods. But basically in sum, Here's what we have. Tokenization converts text into a list of words, and then the tokenizer then converts those list of of words into tokens, into integers. And then uh, embedding converts this list of integers into a list of vectors for that word space so that we can use it based on how we're taking these tokens and embedding them into our multi-dimension. Now, I know there's a lot of stuff there, a lot of things to think about. But there's like one more little element here, and this also helps explain how these large language models work. Because at the end of the day, as mentioned, we're working with numbers. (laughs) We're working with the fact that we're encoding these numbers into multidimensional space. We could be encoding the same token in different places, and it all is based on sort of their context, which has another thing to do with what's called positional encoding. So the words or the tokens and their relationship to each other really aren't enough by themselves to understand the meaning. Even if, they, even if the words like are used in the same way, so not homonyms like band is like rubber band or country band. Let's just say we're talking about cat, so it's one kind of cat, and a man, right? The order of their words and their position or their context in the sentence can really change their meaning. So the cat sat on the man is different in meaning than the man sat on the cat. I'm literally using the exact same tokens, the cat sat on the man, right? Actually, I only have five tokens there because the word the is repeated. So it's the same tokens, the same embeddings, because cat is still in the vector space related to dog and pet the same way, man is still related the same way, and then on and the are kind of handled the same way, but they're in different positions, of the text, and therefore they have different meanings. So we have this additional idea that we need to encode not just the word embeddings and their vectors, but we need to represent their location in the sentence, in the the phrase, and that position is important. That's called positional encoding. So rather than just map the index of each word, which is basically the position, like zero, one, two, three, four, five, in a five word sentence, this is position number four, that's not enough because we could have many different sentences of different lengths and the position four might mean completely different things and completely different sentences. So we create some sort of function. There's a, it's a function that uses actually trigonometry. It's a whole other story here, but it, values between negative one and one because those are values that are important and cosine and sine functions have values between negative one and one. And we can use these functions and we can give them sort of different frequencies. It can say, you know, this word at this particular spot corresponds to this particular encoding using this function. And then we can basically take this positional encoding and we can add it to the other encoding so that I have not just where the word sits in vector space, but also where it sits in position in that vector space and that gives me additional information. And that additional information is stuff that I can train my machine learning model because positional encoding allows words at different locations to have different embeddings with the same dimension. So it's still the same dimensions. We haven't created like a new way of of putting our words into this vector space. It's just that we can encode a little more information there. All right, we're getting closer and closer. Maybe this is already more information than you knew. Maybe you already knew all this, but maybe this helps pull this all together because we have a we have a final idea here that's really important for language models and this thing called the context window. So you think about, well, when I'm typing a prompt, uh, I need the more the information that you can provide in that prompt, the more useful that is because that you're communicating information to a language model and you want it to answer it. So the context window is this idea that when you're providing text input, a prompt, that needs to be then transformed into whatever the output is You a know, large uh, amount of text or you know, images or whatever. The size or the amount that you can put into that input prompt is called the context window. And the context window of large language uh, models is the number of tokens that the model can take as input when generating responses. And as we know, a token is not exactly related to a word because we generally have a few more tokens than we have words. As I mentioned, four tokens for every three words. And the amount of input is really important based on the things that we can do when we have more room. So just for general understanding, in GPT-3, so it's already now kind of old, even though it's only like a year or so, In GPT-3, the context window is 2,000 tokens. So we can put into our prompt 2,000 tokens and it'll understand 2,000. In GPT-4, the next release, it's 32,000 tokens. It's a lot of words. If you think of like 32,000, you know, if you're multiplying, you're taking three quarters of that to figure out how how many words or so, that's still a lot. That's a lot of words that we can put 24,000 words for 32,000 tokens there's a lot you could put a lot into that like you know so we can think about what we can do with that with larger context windows we can provide more examples or larger examples as prompt inputs so we could say here i'm going to give you a bunch of examples now give me a response that matches these examples or i can even give an entire document and say here's a document now answer a question on this document clearly if we have a lot of tokens in that document the more is the better This really enables the large language model to give you a more precise answer or a better answer. So larger context windows also allow you to give more information to a large language model at the training data. So the data on which the model has been trained originally, so of course, GPT model, on top, G- chat GPT sits on top of one of these big language models. So ChatGPT is not a large language model. GPT 3, 4, 5, GPT 4, those are the language models. Chat GPT is a, is a thing that uses that language model and builds uh, conversational context. Which will which we'll explain uh, shortly. So uh, when you understand how that works, then you can provide all this information. So if the training data, GPT four did not include the, in their training data your medical documents or some other thing, you can provide that in the context window. So you can give it the, the 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 model a way to answer questions about that. Or giving it information about events that may have occurred after the, a date of, of information that the language model was trained on. So large context windows also allow you to have a lot of conversational prompts, so you can so you can keep track of the conversation that can go on for hours or days. So clearly, having more. Ah, context window is very, very helpful in getting better results from our language models. And some models, like Anth- Anthropic's Claude, has over hundred thousand tokens in its t- in its context window. So we can expect this to be one of the areas of continued evolution for large language models. Okay, so this brings we're getting closer now to the end here of how these LLMs work. So let's we talked about the language model part, and how the language model works, and how it represents uh, uh, words and tokens and embeds them, and trying to correlates them all together. So the next thing we need to understand is the large part. What is the, what do we mean by large? Well, I mean, I think, well, that's a throwaway word. It's just large. Well, no, it's actually important because in order for all of these embeddings and vectors to help generate text, we need lots and lots of examples of the language to train the model, to respond accurately. Because if you think about it, we need to know not just the words, but it's positional encoding. So we need to have examples of the words in different positions. We have these issues of homonyms, the same words used in different ways. So I need lots and lots and lots of examples. So the OpenAI's GPT-3 was trained mostly on public data. And actually you can go to the Wikipedia entry and you can see that 60% of its data came from an open source data set called Common Crawl with over 410 billion tokens that represented 60% of the total training data that was used for GPT-3. And you too can download that common crawl data, which is available on an Amazon S3 bucket. It's available for everybody. That's the crazy part. The additional data that it used for GPT-3 was something called webtext 2, which is also available, Books 1, Books 2, and Wikipedia, which had 3 billion tokens. If you think about it, you compare Common Crawl, which has 410 billion tokens to Wikipedia, it's kind of amazing because you think Wikipedia is pretty big, but Common Crawl is even bigger. So um, OpenAI, as mentioned, was trained mostly on public data, and GPT-3, the the OpenAI's GPT-3 was trained mostly on public data and was trained on a corpus of about 500 billion words, and you add all that up. And if we understand a little bit about how transformers work, we know that we have all these various different layers and we have a bunch of vectors and GPT-3 has about 12,288 dimensional word vectors. So, so if we talk about all those dimensions that we can place a token, GPT-3 has over 12,000 of those dimensions and it has 96 layers in its <laughs> network. So when you multiply that all together, because we have to train each one of the layers and we're training we're, we're training each one of those dimensional word vectors to understand that's 175 billion parameters. Now, GPT-4, which is sort of the next evolution, uses both public data and data licensed from third-party providers that it says. So I don't think they disclosed entirely with it. And we don't even know total how many parameters are, but there's an estimated 1.7 trillion parameters. And if you think about it and you understand how neural nets work, you know that in order to train it, we need to do constant iteration. We need lots and lots of training data because we need to uh, adjust. We need to find the weights and biases. We need to adjust them. We got to do our big gradient descent. So we got to constantly turn. So think about how much CPU power and how much time was needed to take all of those billions of data elements and their tokens, and train those billions and the trillions of parameters it took a lot of money and a lot of time. People said they spent over a hundred million dollars just in training for that model. But GPT four does a little bit more than just that. It 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 was trained in two stages. The first is that we used the standard training approach to train the model on the large amount of data that was used to basically predict what the next tokens would be. But then GPT four did something else interesting. We they used humans, they used this human review factor. So they had humans taking a look at the outputs and humans basically decided not only which responses were better, but also which ones may not have, well, might not be acceptable because one of the issues with these language models is that they sometimes generated unacceptable uh, text and responses. Human reviews were used to basically fine-tune the system using something called reinforcement learning from human feedback. And as if you know about reinforcement learning, it's a way of a machine learning on its own through trial and error. And of course, the human feedback basically was the reward system. The human said, this is good, that's not good, this is acceptable, that's not acceptable. And then the system then used on its own reinforcement learning to create what's called a reward that it would then use to evaluate the responses that came back from the machine learning model. So the machine learning model would say, here's some text, and then the reinforcement learning model would go review it and say, no, generate some better text, or no, this is not acceptable. And and so these responses are basically evaluated to refuse prompts that go against uh, OpenAI's definition of harmful behavior. So it could just reject the prompt that you're putting in, or it could evaluate the, respo- the response data and generate, see if the uh, ex- content is acceptable. Um, and it used the reinforcement learning reward model. Now this is what GPT d- did and does, and the open source models are doing the same thing. So if you're familiar with open source Llama 2, Uh, GPT model, which was released by Meta, formerly Facebook. Uh, Meta, the creators of of Llama 2 basically used both training data that was available as well as this reinforcement learning from human factors. But the difference is that uh, Meta did not disclose (laughs) what data they used to train the open source model. You would imagine they probably used many of the same open source. Okay. So we actually have all the components now that we need to understand and put together in LLM. So the current batch of large language models use transformer models that we've talked about that transform one text input into a text output. And the large language models use this idea of attention, which was developed in the transformer model idea, and the combination of embedding and positional encoding for context. So we embed it, we have positional encoding, and if we kind of if you look at sort of the diagram for the transformer model that came out of the research piece, you'll recognize a lot of the components now. so the the idea of attention, if you're not familiar with it again, is that attention, not just takes the token and the positional encoding, but it weights each token based on how important the network thinks it is to the context and meaning. So it's not just about the word order and patterns, but also importance, like this word is particularly important. And so attention, this idea of attention happens many, many times on the input prompt in parallel. So it's happening all at the same time with the same input text. Some of the attention systems might match pronouns and nouns to say, he's referring to this person, Jim. Some might try to resolve entities and say uh, what an entity is or a two-word phrase saying, okay, I understand this two-word phrase. This two-word phrase is important. Some might try to connect words for meaning. So this idea of attention is very important. As a matter of fact, it's so important that the folks who came up with the Transformer model research paper said attention is all you need. And so once we have this attention, then we pass this attention to the... Um, a regular feed forward neural net that is trained to predict the next word. So the neural net predicts the next word and it uses the attention weights to help it with the prediction. So attention really keeps track. If you want to think of it, there's two things that's happening here. The attention part keeps track of what's important and what's information was provided in the prompt. It basically looks at the prompt and says, based on the prompt, this is important. And the feed forward part just does a, a next word prediction where it would predict based on it, you give it a word sequence or try to predict the next word based on that sequence but the, the fact that we have attention basically helps guide the feed forward network to provide the next word based on what the attention part says whether and so basically the feed forward network would would could, would provide a word whether or not it appears in the prompt so that's why we need the feed forward part because it could say uh, i like my my sugar with coffee and you know, cream, right? <laughs> right? And that's not in the prompt. Uh, so the feed forward network would suggest it. And the attention model would probably say, hey, coffee is really important here. So you should probably make something that is a high relevance to coffee. So if we put all these pieces together and you look at the paper called Attention is All You Need, there's a little diagram here and you can see all the parts. You can see how inputs are encoded. There's a t- like just like all sort of generative networks, we have two networks. We have what's called an encoder and a decoder. And an encoder basically takes your prompt or takes your input and it encodes it into some general representation to say here's what I think this input means and then the decoder basically takes that piece of code that's why it's called code and then it tries to generate an output based on what it thinks the original input meant. so it's encoder decoder pair. So in this case the encoder uses the uh, multi what's called multi-head attention and feed forward to generate representation and then we generate the response using uh, another, attention-based uh, and feedforward network. So the system decodes the representation on the right network, which is the, the uh, decoder network, to generate the outputs. And it puts, it gets basically a bunch of tokens. It doesn't actually get words, right? It gets a bunch of tokens. And those tokens are decoded uh, using the IDs and the positional embedding. So it uses positional encoding again to put the words in the right order. And then we get our output. Wow. I know that was a lot, but that's basically how it works. And if you understand the magic, you understand all it's doing is chopping things apart, trying to get attention, getting the vectors, putting them in the right place, trained on a ton of data. So it's got this information from how it would predict based on everything else it's seen. And it's basically generating that prediction based on all those factors together. So using this approach, large language models basically generate New text output based on predicting which text patterns best match the pattern from the prompt. So the prompt is telling it what the pattern is and tries to match it best of the pattern, leveraging this idea of attention that leverages all the data that was learned from a very large amount of pre-existing text language data that it was pre-trained on. And the model chooses the best next token from a set of possible candidates. And then it re- keeps repeating that until it feels like the next best thing to do is to just stop that's when it ends its generation. So, like, well, the, the, adding more words doesn't help here, so let's stop. So uh, as mentioned, um, if you want to understand how attention operation works. If you want to look at GPT-3, because we have a lot of numbers there, as mentioned, it's 96 layers and each layer has 96 attention heads. So what it's doing is it's performing 9,216 attention operations every single time it predicts a new token, a new word. And this is how the magic of large language models work. And it seems complicated mainly just because there's just a lot of stuff that it's doing. But when you understand the pieces, the pieces in it themselves are simple. Of course, doing it requires a lot of data, a lot of computing, and of course, actually making these models work. And that's beyond the technical capabilities of most people who use these large language models.
0: Generative pre-trained transformer model shortened to GPT is a pre-trained neural network machine learning model using the transformer architecture that can create large amounts of text from short human prompts. So if you've played around with chat GPT at all, you'll know you need to enter just a short Message, a short prompt in human language, and then it will bring back very large amounts of text in a variety of different things that you ask it to do. And people have been using it for all different sorts of things to, uh, you know, generate articles and generate different texts of different forms. Developed by OpenAI under a commercial model, GPT-3, which was originally released in 2020, was trained on an extremely large amount of data collected from the internet. So, this was internet data, and it had over 175 billion machine learning parameters, which is just an incredibly insane, insane amount and can be used to generate text of any sort it also is used for programming code other forms of text output again i am sure you have played around with this you can use it for help with you know getting ideas for different things maybe different um, you know seo prompts uh, and words that you can use there or article subjects all of that chatgpt is a large language model Chatbot, and it was developed by OpenAI based on GPT 3.5, and it was released to the public on November 30th, 2022. So, just a brief history of GPT in case you're not familiar with it. In December of 2015, OpenAI, the company, was created. In June of 2016, OpenAI published research on generative models. Two years later, in June 2018, the first GPT language model, GPT-1, was unveiled by OpenAI. And back in 2018, this was considered a major advancement at the time. It had 117 million parameters, which still is a large amount. Nothing compared to what we have now, but it was a large amount in 2018 that was really considered a major advancement. In February of 2019, GPT-2 was released, now with 1.5 billion parameters. And later that year, in July of 2019, this is when Microsoft and OpenAI announced their partnership, and this is when Microsoft said that they would be investing $1 billion into OpenAI. That is an insane amount of money back in 2019. Now, it still is an insane amount of money that is being, uh, you know, for anybody to invest in an organization. You can sense that GPT is very, you know, data hungry and compute hungry, which makes sense as to why Microsoft might be partnering with OpenAI. But again, it was an incredibly large investment. In June of 2020, so about a year later, GPT-3 was released, now with 175 billion parameters, which was by far the largest and most powerful language model that was ever created. We think about GPT-1 at 117 million parameters, GPT-2 had 1.5 billion, GPT-3 now had 175 billion. So this is getting very large. In March of 2022, GPT 3.5 was quietly released by OpenAI, and then later that year in November of 2022, that was when ChatGPT was released. It was built off of 3.5, and it was released to the general public. Took the world by storm. People were using this instantly, playing around with it. I'm sure you've played around with it, either for personal or professional use. And there was a lot of different applications that people were using this for helping with code, helping write text. So that could be marketing text, that could be articles, that could be content of any sort that you were using for your organization or for personal use as well. And people have been getting incredibly creative with this. Just a few months later in March of 2023, GPT-4 is released. So between December of 2015 and March of 2023, you can see the insane growth that this has created. And again, in November of 2022, which is kind of when it you know, took the world by storm with the possibilities of what was possible. So this is just a very brief history of GPT and an overview of what chat GPT is. So if you hear it come up in conversation and you're talking to people, you'll be able to better understand what it is.
1: So it's important to note that GPT and the set of offerings that are offered by OpenAI are on the GPT-N, the 3.5 and 4, and I'm sure there'll be future versions. And ChatGPT, they're not the same thing. So ChatGPT is a particular fine-tuned application of the GPTN large language model. So ChatGPT depends on and sits on top of this general large language model that can do a wide range of tasks. But ChatGPT is specifically fine-tuned for conversational usage and dialogue, back and forth uh, interaction. And it also applies this re- reinforcement learning from a human feedback approach that we have talked about, where Uh, humans will sort of score and provide a reward for optimal responses as well as score the responses that the system should not be providing to do a little bit of moderation. And um, so that's very important to to realize that ChatGPT has those things. So another way of thinking about it is that ChatGPT is a fine-tuned application of GPTN that relies on a particular set of the GPT parameters, is optimized for dialogue, and has content filters. So, and uh, that's important to know because GPT-4, the latest release especially, has much broader application than ChatGPT. It can even handle things like image inputs. So you can provide an image input and you can perform some sort of text-based task on it, like tell me what's in this image or do some uh, interesting things about the image. So that's really quite powerful with that feature. And uh, ChatGPT as an application of GPT has grown so quickly that by January of 2023, ChatGPT became the fastest growing consumer software application in history, in history, with over 100 million users, growing OpenAI's valuation to over 29 billion. And I think in terms of revenue, I think they may be even hitting a billion dollars in revenue. So pretty remarkable. And I think both GPT and ChatGPT, its most famous application, are incredibly useful. Start with the term prompt engineering. Generative AI systems are really taken people's imagination in part because of how powerful they are and they can do remarkable things. And the generative AI systems now are the most popular, all based on these large language models that primarily are transformer-based and that they can transform your input, your text input into a larger output, whether that's more text or images or video or, or audio or lots of other things that people are working on with transformers. But the core of this is that you're providing that text input and the whole thing that the language model is trying to do is trying to predict what it feels like that output Shouldn't say the user would feel the model is predicting probabilistically what that output should be based on an input text. And so that input text really is all of the information you're providing that model. And if you provide just a short amount of text, then it'll provide sort of the average, the the thing, because as you know, large language models are trained on billions and billions of of, of different pieces of text, sheer huge quantities of information. And based on all that information that's been trained on for many months, hundreds of millions of dollars, lots of CPU cycles, all that sort of baked into the model. And so it'll, it will can provide many different responses based on that input text. So since the prompt is really the only input, getting the output that you want really is a matter of thinking about how that prompt will elicit the response from the model. Of course, we know that machine learning models are black boxes. We don't know exactly how, technically how they work because they're so complicated. So really it's about creativity and really trying to think about your word selection and the detailed word selection. So that's really what prompt engineering is. It's really about that creative style of trying to elicit the response you want based on the engineering of your text prompt input to generate the expected output. So you could think of it almost like word coding. You're, you're basically coding with words. <laughs> and you're trying to use the right words in the right order to elicit the right output. Now, clearly, the more detailed the prompt, the more specific the output will be because you're basically, again, trying to take that large language model and say of all the possible responses, we're trying to narrow those responses to things that are more in line with what you're suggesting. So you're kind of whittling down this universe of possible responses. But remember, this is just a text prediction engine. It's gonna use what it's been trained on, right? Whether that's text or code or whatever it is that it's been traded on. So the prompt engineering is really can be also be used iteratively that it's not just a one-time thing. We can send a prompt, especially in sort of the chat interfaces that are built on top of these language models. The chat interfaces will basically maintain that conversation what's called the context window. And so as long as your conversations all happen within or the prompts all happen within that conversation, the context window, then it can use anything within that context to further iterate and further revise the answer. So if you just say, tell me about cats, it may give you sort of the general average response based on what it's been trained about to predict the response on telling you about cats, which is fairly dry and academic. So uh, you could further refine that. You could say, okay, well, in a more informal manner, like you're speaking to a three-year-old. So I didn't even have to say in that prompt, tell me about cats. It knew that the context was still tell me about cats. That was still within the context window. This is a revision saying, revise that, provide me a new prediction and take this new prompt to add to the existing one, give it some more attention and says like you're speaking to a three-year-old. And here it goes, gives me just a sentence or two. Now uh, you can even revise things, and you could say, you know, act as a doctor, and or 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 provide a response in this exact format, or give me a response in code, or give me a response, you know, in chart format, or give me a response in ASCII graphic format, whatever it is. When you tell the prompt, what you're doing is you're you're iterating, you're telling the large language model how to predict that response and give that response according to what the prompt says. Now we all may be familiar with this because people are so many people are playing with prompt uh, with these LLMs and these generative AI systems, and everybody's gaining experience in this. But you may realize that the more detailed the prompt, the better the outputs will be. So here we have an image example where we use a very detailed prompt, capture the essence of a free-spirited young woman standing on a road leading to a breathtaking landscape with the handheld mirrorless Sony Alpha A7 A73. It's like, okay, why? Because each one of these things, again, the and att- the way that attention works is that when you provide that attention, it's going to then refine the universe of possible answers and say, okay, well, when I've generated images before that have been tagged as Sony Alpha A7 III, that gives the model a little bit more information about that. And I, this example is like paragraphs long here. And then it results in some pretty fantastic images that look very photorealistic, right? And But I think it's important to note that, again, it's... This isn't magic. It's trained on this corpus of image and text data that is out there that's available for that uh Taking, hopefully, in a way that's public and wasn't taken in a way that was not supposed to be. But in any case, all this, that's where this information is coming from. So there actually may even be implicit biases. When I said capture the essence of a free-spirited young woman, I didn't say a young, you know, Caucasian lady with brunette hair, but that's exactly what you get when you, when you look at the examples. That is like 90% of the examples because those were the training images. So if you want something else, then you should specify that in the prompt. But that means that you need to provide more information. And so therefore these are what we call implicit biases in the data sets based on what average or what the language models have been trained on. Now I wanna say something because this may seem very obvious. Okay, well, big deal, prompts, language models, any kid now who goes to school (laughs) knows about that, right? I think the biggest point about this is that prompt engineering is transformative in a pretty fundamental way, even for machine learning engineers and data scientists have been down this road. You might be thinking, well, we've had chatbots for for decades. This is just like a chatbot, right? Well, not exactly, because what's happening here is that we're using a large language model in these cases that haven't specifically been built for chatbots. In fact, they haven't been specifically built for any particular task, just except for the text prediction past. Uh, uh, task, that is, uh, you know, as is, as is quoted somewhere, it says that results that have previously been achievable only by costly fine-tuning. So if you previously wanted to have a model do something specific, like be a chatbot, be a sentiment analysis tool, do document classification, any one of those tasks, previously what you would have had to have done if there was some sort of general task is retrain it, basically fine-tune it by basically getting your new examples supervised or unsupervised and then doing the tools of machine learning and data science to create a new model. And that new model is then fine-tuned for that thing. But we're not creating a new model. We are just using the very same large language model. We're just asking it to do different tasks. That's the transformative thing here. I'm going to continue the sentence. Results previously achievable only by costly fine-tuning can be achieved now through prompt engineering limited to the scope of the context window. So as long as you can fit your prompt into the context window, you can get these large language models to do all sorts of things that previously you would have had required to have built and fine-tuned a new model that would have required GPUs and data and all that sort of stuff. And then at the and you would have had a model that would have only done that one thing. So, the big point is why bother retraining a pre trained model using the tools and techniques of machine learning and data science when you can just prompt engineer, which now pretty much uh, anybody can do. And the models are accessible <laughs> to the general public. So, the cost of access is so low, you don't even have to think about getting a GPU, opening up a data science notebook, doing a PyTorch, any of that stuff, right? Do you need uh, assistance with coding? You prompt it. Do you uh, want a document classifier? You just prompt it. You need sentiment analysis, but just do a prompt. You know you need a machine translation, prompt, right? You need almost anything in the conversational pattern of AI. We've talked about the seven patterns of AI. One of those patterns is the conversational pattern, which covers many of the different use cases of NLP. Pretty much all of those use cases, prompt engineering. And that is a change <laughs> because a couple years ago, That wasn't the answer to the question, right? Of you need something in the conversational pattern. Now, of course... What are the the drawbacks? Well, when you fine tune a model, when you do retrain a model, then you have built your model that's custom suited to that one particular task, which has pros and cons. Sometimes that's what you want, if you want, because the thing about it uh, about an LLM is is it's only the stuff that fits in the in the context window. So if you start doing things that are beyond the context window, then you're gonna have to sort of reintroduce the prompt or restart the the conversation and all that sort of stuff, which you might do, which might work perfectly fine. But if you're just doing some sort of uh, you know, grocery checkout tool and something, and you want a small compact model that only does that one thing, there's no using prompt engineering may actually be over engineering for that problem, ironically. So a fine tuned model using retraining will keep its learning because it's been trained just for that one thing and be specific and optimized just for that use case. But of course, the question is, does that matter? Right, and that's the big—that's the big point, and that's why prompt engineering is so transformative. From a methodology perspective, if you're thinking about running and managing your AI project, it is always worth asking the question. Of course, once you get your business understanding, which is why are you doing this at all? But once you understand the problem you're solving, you need to ask: Can this be done through prompt engineering before you open up and crack open your data science tools and? the need to label data and cleanse data and data prep and all sorts of stuff, first question should be asked, can we do this through prompting? And that's what I think is so transformative about prompt engineering. So one, one big thing to note here, and this is kind of interesting and curious. I have we have an example here, uh, sort of in this previous um, uh, slide here of how, how I uh, asked the system to do some sentiment analysis. I provided a couple of sentences, and I said, "Please predict the sentence, the sentiment of these sentences, and provide a response." in JSON format. And it did that with some uh, some good accuracy, but there were some issues, there were some errors. There were some instances where it classified some uh, financial statement in a neutral way when maybe the data source that I used said it should have been positive. So here's the thing. I can actually iteratively ask the uh, the LLM, I actually prompted, I said, hey, some of these answers, these analyst answers were incorrect. Can you please figure out which ones might have an alternate response, an alternate sentiment analysis? Give me a details to which ones might have a different response and than what you have provided and the reason why it might have a different response. Surprisingly, the systems will provide some explanation. And I think this is a little remarkable uh, because most... Ne- neural networks are black boxes. They can't explain anything. They can't tell you why they facial recognize this person as that this person. So what's remarkable is that large language models and prompt engineering uh, approaches, so we think of prompt engineering, may provide some insights into how the model might be able to explain itself, or at least what's called interpretability. If you think of explainability as an algorithmic thing, like I, I, I use this weight, combine it with this factor... That might be too low level for this, but it'll give interpretability. And when I asked that question to, in this case, ChatGPT, it did say, well, in this one case, I said the sentiment was neutral, but the statement could be considered as having a slightly positive sentiment. And it said here, the fact that sales increased with the department store and the clothing subsidiary could be seen as positive, even though sales for Hobby Hall decreased, the overall growth might lead to a slightly positive sentiment. That is pretty remarkable <laughs> because even when people make sentiment analysis decisions, mistakes, that's sort of the reasoning they would take. So there's some thought here that large language models, especially through this prompt engineering and creating and crafting the right prompts, may edge us up from the knowledge level of the DIK UW pyramid to the understanding level.
0: We hope that you enjoyed that excerpt from our new CPMAI version 7 training and certification. If you're interested in learning more and taking the course yourself so that you can dig deeper into this topic, as well as the cognitive project management for AI CPM AI methodology and get your certification as well, you can go to courses.cognalytica.com and we'll link to that in the show notes as well. So you can just click on it and it'll take you right there. Version seven has been revamped, it is incredibly robust and it, of course, covers generative AI because how could it not? So if you do want to get a certification yourself, which is incredibly important these days because it helps you stand out from the rest of the crowd. Everybody's claiming to be an AI expert these days, but you with your certification really will be one step further to being an AI expert yourself. So if you'd like to learn more, like I said, go to courses.cognalytica.com and you can sign up and register right on the site. We have self-paced training and so you can start immediately. Um, and if you do have groups that you'd like us to come to your organization and train in person, then absolutely do reach out. You can reach out at info at Cognolitica.com. That's I-N-F-O at C-O-G-N-I-L-Y-T-I-C-A.com so that we can discuss that. We have a few upcoming trainings for some of our clients and we're really looking forward to that, getting in person, really you know, being able to collaborate. So again, thank you so much for listening to this podcast. As always, we love to hear from our listeners So obviously reach out. We do love hearing from you. And rate us if you haven't done so already on iTunes, Google, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform. And if you aren't yet subscribed, subscribe to AI Today, because as I mentioned, this is part of a series, a generative AI series. So you will get notified if you subscribe of all of our upcoming episodes. Like this episode and want to hear more? With hundreds of episodes and over 3 million downloads, check out more AI Today podcasts at aitoday.live. Make sure to subscribe to AI Today if you haven't already on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google, Amazon, or your favorite podcast platform. Want to dive deeper and get resources to drive your AI efforts further? We've put together a carefully curated collection of resources and tools, handcrafted for you, our listeners, to expand your knowledge, dive deeper into the world of AI, and provide you with the essential resources you need. Check it out at aitoday.live/list.